You're listening to Hear Arizona. Addressing issues, empowering our community. It's a well-known theory in psychology. Maybe you've heard of it. Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. It's represented by a pyramid broken up into layers, each one smaller than the one below it, like the old food pyramid. Each layer represents a human need. The bottom and foundational layer is physiological needs, food, water, clothing. The second is safety, having shelter, not feeling threatened by violence. The third is social, having friends and family, feeling loved. The fourth is esteem, having self-confidence and feeling respected. And the fifth and final piece at the top of the pyramid is self-actualization, living your best life as they say, being fulfilled and creative and striving to take on challenges. The idea is you work from the bottom up. You have to have each one covered before you move on to the one above. We'll do the same thing in this episode, starting from the bottom, food, shelter, and safety. So my name's Lamonte McDuffie. I never considered myself an abused kid um, growing up. Like I've had a whooping and like had a black eye one night and my great grandmother came over and she's like, don't let her turn on the light, pretend like you're asleep. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) So I grew up with the principle that what happens in my house happens in my house. It doesn't leave my house. I definitely had trust issues. I didn't trust adults. I did some bouncing around from a couple of different places. Like I went from all within like three years, I went from Chicago to Arizona, from Arizona back to Chicago, from from Chicago back to Arizona, then back to Chicago, then to Georgia. Like I was in some of the top behavior schools in Illinois and they all did restraints. So as soon as like, if you're making that call or you're pushing that button, I know now that someone is coming to hold me down and you know, There's about to be like seven staff on top of me. So it caused my anxiety levels to go higher. Like, I tell people now, I was bullied at home. I wasn't going to be bullied at school, too. So if you're going to try to bully me, then it was going to, we were going to have to fight because I knew if I, if I got in trouble at school and I didn't get into a fight, I'm still going to go home and get beat. Lamonte lived in Georgia with his great aunt for a while. And when he was there, I remember having one of those days where, okay, I'm in trouble and you're calling my home. So I might as well go all out. And I like shredded all this stuff on my desk and threw it all around the classroom and was flipping tables and stuff. I didn't feel safe going home. I didn't feel safe eating there. There were, you know, there were some family things going on there. I had more days of not having food and not having lights on in the house and not having gas and having to figure out how to budget at 12 years old, $20 to get everything that I needed for the month, like hygiene products and all that stuff. He ended up back in the Phoenix area as a teenager living with his grandmother. And on December 25th, 2011, Christmas Eve, wonderful Christmas, um, there was an argument between me and my grandmother, which led to my aunt attacking me, which led to my grandma attempting to break it up, but her attacking me and then my grandfather. So police came. I was labeled as the aggressor. I was taken into um, juvie for the night. And then they were like, OK, you have court in the morning. And I met with the judge and I'm like, hey, not the aggressor. Didn't do anything. <laughs> um, and then he met with a Department of Child Safety worker who gave him two choices. 
either you go back or you go into a group home. I, it, sign me up. Put me in the group home. So chose to go to a group home. Ended up going into one of um, Sunshine Residential's group homes in the West Valley. Fast forward 10 years from that Christmas Eve to today. Lamonte is 25 years old. He's a college graduate, a current master's student, and a recreational therapist who works with kids with behavioral issues. Kids like he used to be. I have contact with at least three out of the five group home staff that were there when I was there. And, you know, I share things with them like, hey, I went to college. And they're like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Like, you know, or I'm working on my master's degree now. And they're like, that's amazing. So it definitely started once I learned how to have emotions, like have loving emotions towards a person and learn how to problem solve at the same time. And that group home Lamonte was talking about is a regular residential house owned and operated by a private company that takes care of foster kids without foster families. The adults there are professionals who come and go. There are no traditional parental figures. It can be a tough place to grow up, and a lot of the kids who end up there have, like Lamonte, been through some really rough stuff. Right now, there are about 1,500 children in Arizona living in a group home like this. But one thing they offered at Lamonte's group home, one thing that was critical to Lamonte ending up where he is now, was a chance to do art. When I finally made it to the group home and I'm working with these people and they're like, well, this is what abuse is. And (laughs) we got to learn how to express these emotions in healthy ways and paint out what your emotions look like and things like that. It basically gave me a way to tell my story without having to feel like a victim. Art can be a language for self-expression and processing trauma when words fail. And teaching art to children can do even more than turn their lives around. It can inspire them, spur their creativity, and it can fuel the technological breakthroughs essential to achieving our species' most exciting goals in a responsible way, like building intelligent robots and going to Mars. Art can bring people a sense of safety, love, self-confidence, and self-actualization. And it can bring humanity to new heights. Heights that we can only imagine with art. I'm Jessica Flowers, and I'm the program director at Free Arts for Abused Children of Arizona. The group home took care of Lamonte's first two layers on Maslow's pyramid, physiological needs and physical safety. The organization Jessica Flowers leads gave him a chance to climb higher. Free Arts volunteers did arts projects with Lamonte at the group home. Today, he and Jessica work together at the organization. Lamonte's on the board. Free Arts for Abused Children of Arizona was founded in 1993 by an art therapist named Margaret Beresford. And um, that very first year, I think she served 50 children. And Free Arts has since expanded. Um, In our our lifetime, we've served more than 130,000 children. Jessica said roughly 70% of the children they serve now are in foster care group homes like Lamonte was. All the kids they served have been abused, neglected, or homeless. Free Arts offers them all kinds of opportunities to do and experience art. Field trips to places like the Botanical Gardens and Musical Instrument Museum, special classes from professional artists, day camps focused on things like theater or hip-hop, and maybe most importantly, regular meetings with mentor art teachers. 
The organization has an equation at the heart of everything they do. Art plus mentors equals resilience. And those components are important because they're based on some pretty deep research around what builds resilience in children, particularly children that have experienced trauma. And the two things that the research say are um, giving those children the opportunity to build skills and have positive experiences uh, within the safety of relationships. The mentor gives the child a trustworthy and caring adult to form a relationship with. And the art gives them a way to express themselves. And doing art in front of others takes courage and that builds confidence. Flower said she often sees kids come into a program and be very, very hyper, very dysregulated, um, uh, worried or concerned or, or loud or fidgety or anxious. And then they sit down to draw a mandala. And within 15 minutes, you can see that their breathing has regulated and slowed down. Their muscles have relaxed. They start to hum or sing to themselves. Um, so we've seen that chemical process really happen right before our eyes. Researchers have studied art therapy for traumatized children for decades. They've made connections between what kids draw and what they've experienced, to the point that some claim that a kid's art can function as a way to determine if they've been abused, even if they won't talk about it. There's plenty of research showing that cognitive behavioral therapy, a form of talk therapy, is highly effective for abused kids. But others, such as a four-year study from 2007, show that art therapy combined with cognitive behavioral therapy can decrease anxiety, depression, and self-harm in children long-term. The kids that I worked with had severe abuse and neglect and traumas that, that you can't even articulate sometimes. What we found in the residential treatment center is that verbal therapy was not particularly helpful for a lot of them. They didn't want to talk about it. Gussie Clore is retired now. But I was the um, founding director of the art therapy, graduate art therapy program at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. She had her own private practice where she treated children. She taught the next generation of art therapists at the university, and she wrote multiple books and articles on the topic. Dr. Clore is an artist herself and said she gets the benefit of art therapy in her own life. When I'm processing a loss or something in my life, I turn to art. Always, always, always. Um, and a lot of times I create the art and I'm not even sure what my art is about until I can reflect later about it when I'm not so emotionally involved in the situation and then look back at the art and say, oh, wow, yeah, I, I know what I was I know what I was dealing with when I made that. This, I learned, is the key to art therapy. It allows someone to express themselves and their emotions without words. And that's why it's so important to do in addition to something like cognitive behavioral therapy, which requires a lot of talking through thought patterns. Talking through things with words can be difficult, especially for abused, neglected, or traumatized children. To me, it's astounding what some kids have to endure in their lives. Dr. Clore said that when a kid is born into or grows up in a traumatic environment, they're in survival mode from day one. They're stuck at the bottom of the pyramid, and they develop coping mechanisms that affect the way their brain develops, and the impacts can be long-lasting. So the brain is, is not getting what it needs to develop in an optimal way, and the child then is learning that the world is not safe, 
that we don't reach out to people. We we pull ourselves inward. Or the opposite could happen. They develop a hyperactive response because what they realize is that it's not safe to sit still too long. But when you do art therapy with a child, especially a really young one, you can make new neural pathways, rewire their brain, and maybe teach them healthier ways to relate to the world and other people. So when I work with children, uh, especially children with severe early, early abuse and neglect, one of my very first goals is to help that child to feel that they are lovable. I think the main thing is that it offers a child a genuine way to express feelings. Feeling lovable, having strong social connections, that's the third layer of the pyramid. And she said art therapists form relationships with the children and can help them figure out what's going on in their life and... Maybe not necessarily verbalize it, but help the child process it and work through it a little bit. Dr. Clore gave me an example. I worked with a child that, that had a lot of history with neglect and a mother who, you know, for whatever reason, could not nurture her child and in fact was abusive to the child. And anytime you say anything about his mother, he gets very defensive. You know, he has to believe that his mother's good. He's the bad one and, and she beat him because he was bad. He, he internalizes himself as being bad. And so in art therapy, I'm working with him and he's just kind of playing around with the art materials. And I say, draw me a picture of whatever you want. And he looks at me and he says, anything? And I said, sure. Anything? Yeah, you can draw anything. And he says, can I draw the vampire that kills my mom? Now, he, he could not say anything bad about his mom. But when it came time to do the art, he had something that just spontaneously came out. We didn't talk then about anything. He gave me a metaphor, and that metaphor was all we needed. Like Dr. Clore, Jessica's worked in this area for her whole career. She's been with Free Arts for almost 15 years. And I asked her, what's kept her there all this time? Although we hear some of the terrible challenges that so many of these children have been through, we also have the amazing opportunity to help them see the gifts that they have inside of themselves and um, really bring those gifts to light. One of the first projects we did was a collage, like two mentors um, came in, butcher paper, a bunch of newspaper clippings, markers. This is Lamonte again, remembering his first ever project with Free Arts shortly after he moved into the group home. The prompt for this first art project was... Who do you want to be? It was a, it was a poster board, um, and on one side it was. It was like a poem, and it was all dark and angsty. Like, oh, you know, when I grow up, I'm not going to be these people, and I, know I don't want to be this person. I know I don't want to be the angry person. I don't want to be the person that doesn't have a relationship with anyone. Um, I remember her name was Carmen. Carmen was a free arts volunteer. Carmen sat down and was kind of helping me cut out stuff, and... And she's like, okay, you talked about this part. What, what what do you want to do? You know what you don't want to do, but what do you want to do? So I, I want to be nice. I want to be loving. I want to be caring. I want to be a good person. <laughs> Lamonte said growing up, he was labeled the bad kid. 
Most adults that were around him either neglected him or aggressively suppressed his behavior, even physically restraining him when he acted out. They were holding him down on the Maslow Pyramid too, keeping him in a state of stress over his own safety. But his foster home, other key mentors, and the free arts programs picked him up and helped teach him how to make social connections. They had his back and patiently let him work through his emotions. And he took off from there. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Above social connection on the Maslow Pyramid is the fourth of the five layers, self-confidence. Hey, Anthony, how are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I am good. I had a Zoom call with someone who told me a story about gaining self-confidence. Her name's Katie Coleman. And I uh, learned to play the flute when I was in sixth grade and was never one of those amazing people that was like the best in the entire school but I really loved music. And then a particularly large sort of growing up experience for me was that the drama instructor uh, wanted to start a dinner theater. She was gonna do a show called You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. And she needed a keyboard player, a percussionist, and a flute player. And I didn't think that I could be like the only person that you know, was in the band that was the flute player. It just sounded like too much to me. And so my best friend, who was also a flute player, we shared that job together. You know, getting ready for that dinner theater, it made me realize that I could be my very own person in music. I mean, I got to stay up late <laughs> and, uh, and be, you know, and be part of something that was, um, that was important. And throughout Katie's illustrious career that took place after that dinner theater performance, she was a part of a lot of things that were very important. I'm a former astronaut, and I'm also a musician. Katie Coleman has gone to space three times, twice on the space shuttle and once to the International Space Station, where she stayed for 159 days. But she told me another story from before all that. Another really pivotal experience for me was that I was an exchange student in Norway. And then while I was in Norway, my best friend was a woman that lived a, a, a kind of a, a long walk away, but we would meet all the time and play music together. And that led to playing, you know, music on the street in Oslo. And so took a certain bravery, like, well, maybe I will try this. And for me personally, it's very helpful when the person that I'm saying that to, the person who's encouraging me, is really looking at me like, I think you can do this. Because I actually kind of need that encouragement. My mental stereotype of an astronaut is a daredevil Air Force fighter jet test pilot. Katie Coleman does not fit that stereotype. She is Dr. Coleman, a PhD chemist and engineer. Not jobs that most people think naturally require superhuman bravery. Not only did she have to launch into space on a rocket, she had to operate an extraordinarily expensive and important robotic arm at the space station. T-minus 30 seconds. This is the actual audio of Katie's second launch into space on the space shuttle Columbia in July of 1999. 20 minutes, 20 seconds. So I just wonder what, it, what, what was it like for you to go into space? I mean, I, you know, a lot of people get nervous when they take off on a plane. 12, 11. By the time you're laying there on the launch pad getting ready to go, seven, six, you're not gonna help anything by being worried about it. Four, 
three. We have a goal for engine start, zero. We have booster ignition and liftoff of Columbia, reaching new heights for women in X-ray astronomy. You may as well really just be present for every single moment of that wild ride. Roger roll, Columbia, we're looking at. Were you able to be present for that experience? Absolutely. At a certain point, you've done all the work you can do to be ready, and then you, you know, now you are on stage doing that job, whether it's operating the robotic arm or making sure that something else happens really safely um, on the spacecraft. Roger that, Columbia. Looks like we had a transient on AC-1. Then you get to just really enjoy doing that thing, that beautiful ballet with the, with the robotic arm or that spacewalk where your crew goes out the door perfectly ready and you're going to be able to tell them what they need to know in a way they can hear it. You know, it's very much like being in a band. There's a lot of parallels, I think, between music and executing a space mission. And today, back on Earth, Kitty plays in two all-astronaut bands. She told me that she still gets nervous sometimes when she performs for a crowd with them. It's a testament to how art can challenge us and help us grow and develop confidence and bravery at any stage in life. It can help a foster kid at a free arts camp, a young college student performing on a street corner, and even a former astronaut who spent nearly six months in space. I definitely do think that all those times of, you know, you take a solo or whether that solo is in the concert band or in the stage band or you're picked for the dinner theater and then you realize you really can do this. I think that bravery is helpful. The fact that you you can take some risks and it's not like I'm always successful, right? But, you know, in, in music, sometimes you play and you're like, whoa, that was just not what I meant to say. <laughs> and it wasn't very good either. You know? um, but getting that practice at knowing you're prepared and taking that leap and performing. In April of 2011, Katie Coleman played the first ever Earth Space duet with Ian Anderson from the band Jethro Tull. In the video, Katie's hair is unconstrained by gravity, flying upwards. You know, it's not like everything was perfect every day, but I will tell you that I would have spent another six months up there in a minute. I really loved living in space. Besides giving her self-esteem and confidence, Katie considers music an important part of her everyday life, especially in space. The space shuttle is like, you know, being in a small bus, really. I mean, a really small bus, like maybe a minivan, right? It's cooped up. I mean, you can't really get away from the other people, which is why creating your own little world, like maybe with the music that you're listening to, can help. To me, I, I would listen to a lot of folk up on the up on the space station. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Today, Dr. Coleman is Arizona State University's Global Explorer in Residence, and she is a professor of practice in the School of Earth and Space Exploration. I really loved working on our ASU podcast called Mission Interplanetary, because basically we talk about all the things that everyone I know wants to know about and doesn't necessarily want to ask, like, you know, when we go to space, you know, when we get to the moon, who's going to decide what's what it's okay to do and what it's not okay to do? Who's going to own things? Are, who's going to make sure that, you know, some of the things that we haven't done that well in terms of exploration uh, here on Earth 
that we do them better up up there? How are we going to do that as as a people, so to speak? The producer and creator of that podcast is Lance Garavi. I love big questions and big ideas and big stories. The top of the Maslow Pyramid is self-actualization, being fully capable of reaching your potential and doing big things with confidence. It's easy to imagine that with all of Katie Coleman's amazing accomplishments, she's reached the top of that pyramid. But the stuff Lance Garavi is interested in, it's the kind of stuff that's like the top of the pyramid for all of humanity. He's into the biggest, most mind-blowing mysteries and challenges facing our species today and in the future. Where did life come from? What, what in fact, is life? Like, that's a question we still don't have a definitive answer to. Uh, are we alone in the universe? What is consciousness? Lance's background is actually in theater. And more recently, Lance has been working with scientists. I'm a storyteller, uh, and science has great stories. Science has great ideas and, and mysteries and questions. And uh, it's, it's marvelous to investigate that through the tools of the arts. As an artist who works in the sciences, a lot of what Lance does is science communication. And that's extremely important. We need people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Greta Thunberg to explain complicated things like space-time, climate change, and mRNA vaccines. But Lance's work isn't just communicating the science that other scientists do. He does the science with them. I'm working on a project right now to create a, um, a laboratory for experiments uh, with a diverse set of robots and AI uh, and humans to all interact, but it's also an art installation. The idea is that the lab will create the ideal environment for scientists to tackle these huge questions of AI, robots, and the future the right way. The, the piece is called uh, Ghost Lab, uh, an archaeology of the future. It's kind of a, a, a meditation on the past, the present, and the future of automation technologies and, and the way they um, intersect with race and white supremacy and and capitalism and things like that. It's uh, it's also a kind of performance space, uh, like a theater. Uh, but the performers here are are robots and AI and scientists. Maybe you're thinking this is all a little over the top. Why can't the scientists just work with other scientists in a white sterile laboratory and build their robots and code their AI? Why do artists have to have anything to do with this? If we've learned anything in the State of the Art series, it's that art is a lot more than just pretty pictures and music to dance to. It's not an extra or bonus activity that we can make time for once the serious work is done. It's actually an essential part of all that serious work. It's an essential part of being human. It teaches us how to be confident and take risks. It bridges bitter political divides. It can be a legitimate treatment for depression and social isolation. It can be the economic engine of a city or country. It can teach us about the lives of forgotten people from history, and it can pave the way for us to realize our most ambitious possibilities for the future. So several years ago, uh, Michael Crow, the president of ASU, formed the Interplanetary Initiative. Like a lot of thought leaders, he believes that uh, the future of our species is as an interplanetary species, that we will populate other 
places in the solar system and, and perhaps someday beyond. Uh, so uh, he, he wanted to bend the immense resources of ASU towards uh, creating that future. Lance serves as the Associate Director of the Interplanetary Initiative, and it's in this role that he makes the podcast with astronaut Katie Coleman. The initiative cuts across all schools, all colleges, all fields and disciplines. So arts is a part of it, but so is is philosophy. So is psychology and sociology and engineering and, you know, finance, every, everything. Because if you, if you think about it, sending humans to space and populating the solar system, moving off our own beautiful planet is maybe the greatest collective endeavor our species has ever undertaken. And so it goes far beyond the skills and knowledges of any single discipline like astrophysics or, or aerospace engineering. Let's go back to AI for a second. What's called the singularity, the great moment in the future when artificial intelligence passes human intelligence. That could mean utopia, curing disease, eliminating poverty, or it can mean Armageddon. Think iRobot. I will not disable the security field. Your actions are futile. And whichever path we go down, it doesn't really depend on science alone. Science is about making technology work to achieve some specific function. But the art gets to the why and how. It begs us to think of the consequences of our actions. To craft an AI so it makes a world that is truly good and moral for humankind in the future, that's as much of an art as it is a science. And if you think about it, if it wasn't for art, if it wasn't for stories, how would we have the inspiration and ideas to do all this great science and leap into the future? Robots were invented by the theater, in fact. The, the, the word robot was coined uh, by a playwright named Karol Chapek um, in a play he wrote called R.U.R. in, in 1920. There was nothing called a robot until 1920. So the robot comes from a story. And stories are pretty important to Katie Coleman, too. She told me as a kid... I could find myself reading sometimes about women explorers or about people who explored a different world. And I, I sort of, you know, tended towards the books where you would see women be those leaders, those people that had ideas that other people didn't have. And I think there's such value in being able to see yourself in a story. So for Katie Coleman and for Lamonte McDuffie and the other kids that work with free arts, art helps them discover who they are and what they are capable of. It gives them a vision of what's possible and inspires them to go after it. When I was up on the space station, I was in the middle of reading um, a series called Peter and the Starcatchers to my son who was 10 at the time. You might recall Peter and the Starcatcher from episode four of State of the Arts. It's Shelby Matisic's favorite play, and she did a production of it at her Brelby Theater in Glendale. It's whimsical, wondrous, and it has all these possibilities for what life can be like, and what we can be like. And it's even been to space. And it's about the life of Peter Pan before he became Peter Pan. And in these stories, there are smart girls and smart boys and sword fighting and fairy dust and flying and magical, mysterious things that happen. And I wanted my son to, to find himself in stories like that, where there's so many different kinds of people that he would see pieces of himself in the different people. And when we think about people who then 
become the, one of the few people sitting in a rocket, I think one thing that they have in common is that they know something about themselves. They know something about what they are. They know something about what they are not so much. And, and they know that there's things that, that, that they will be that they haven't even discovered yet. And I think you can get that by reading stories or listening to songs that, that speak to you, hearing music, watching movies, on TV shows, where you can try on some different aspects of yourself. It's like we've forgotten who we are now. Explorers, pioneers. The 9000 series is the most reliable computer ever made. The whole world is rooting for you. When life gets you down, you know what you gotta do? Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, swimming. Great moments are born from great opportunity. You're a wizard. To infinity and beyond! You just listened to an entire podcast episode on the arts. So obviously this issue carries some weight for you. To learn more about the organizations we profiled and the issues they face, visit our website, hearearizona.org. That's H-E-A-R Arizona. Tell all your friends to check us out too. They can search for Hear Arizona on their favorite podcast listening app. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, Spotify. And since we're all about empowering our community, we want you to be a part of the conversation. Follow Here Arizona on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This podcast series is made possible by a grant from the Virginia G. Piper Charitable Trust. Here Arizona is a production of the Division of Public Service at Rio Salado College, which includes Sun Sounds, Spot 127, KBOC, and KJZZ. Special thanks to Free Arts for Abused Children of Arizona and ASU's Interplanetary Initiative for their help with this episode. The music in this episode was by me and other local artists, Bob Rabbit. This episode was produced, written, directed, and hosted by me, Anthony Wallace. Linda Pastori is our executive producer. 